0: are listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. Elder Law Answers is the leading provider of web-based practice development tools for Elder Law Attorneys. We help firms reach clients with tools designed by Elder Law Attorneys for Elder Law Attorneys. I'm Rebecca Hobbs, the National Director of Elder Law Answers and a practicing Elder Law Attorney in the Philadelphia area. In each episode of Elder Law Answers for Attorneys, we will chat with leading experts in the field of Elder Law marketing, and practice development. Welcome, today we are going to be discussing adult guardianships. Um, This topic is one that I am really passionate about because as an elder law attorney and as a special needs planning attorney, I have seen firsthand the impact that a guardianship proceeding can have on an individual's rights and liberties, as well as the emotional toll that a guardianship proceeding can have on the family and friends of the individual. So with me today, I am pleased to introduce Dari Pogash. Um, Dari is a staff attorney at the American Bar Association Commission on Law and Aging, where she works on improving practices and providing education to the legal profession on adult guardianships, other decision-making options, supported decision-making, and elder abuse. Zdari has substantive experience in policy and legislative analysis. She has presented at national conferences on advances in state guardianship laws, testified at legislative hearings, and written public reports with recommendations for improving local laws and practices as it relates to guardianships. Zdari, thank you for joining me today. Thank Thank you for having me. So for those that are not familiar with guardianship. Um, I was hoping that you could kind of provide a little bit of background to us, um, talk about the origins of the institution, you know, who is a guardian, who has a guardian, and why a guardianship might be needed.
1: Generally speaking, and I say generally because one thing that's really important to understand about guardianship is that it is entirely a creature of state law and practice. There is no federal law, um, that is applicable to guardianship, nor is there any federal funding for guardianship that each state has its own um, statute that outlines the uh, appropriate laws for guardianship. And then state courts appoint guardians. And I think that it's very important because it's a, it's a unique, it's quite unique actually in that sense. So generally speaking, a guardian is a must be a court appointed um, position where a court determines that a person cannot make their own decisions in many states that involves an evaluation of the person's capacity to make decisions and that guardianship is necessary to prevent harm to the person or others. It's a very uh, drastic state intervention and it should only be designated as a last resort because it removes most of a person's rights to make their own decisions. There's evidence of this kind of delegation, uh, removal of a person's decision-making authority and delegation to the state that it, it comes up as early as ancient history. When you look at our U.S. system of guardianship, our roots, of course, are in the British system. So if you look at 14th to 17th century England, we see the evolution of the parens Patriae doctrine. And that's a legal doctrine that holds that the state is the benevolent caretaker for those who cannot take care of themselves. And so we see early cases of the king um, and then the the British uh British lords and the uh monarchy taking taking over people's property when they demonstrated that they could not take care of their property for themselves. And we see the same thing in colonial in the colonies and then early US history where the state would take over a person's property, and then, you know, of course, at that time, that literally meant their physical property because it was primarily land landowner, landowners would have this issue where, for some reason, they could no longer take care of the property themselves, and there was no family to step in, in and intervene. Um, and of course, now when we talk about guardianship, there's been a major evolution, and to the definition that I spoke of earlier, where uh, we have a person who not only they may not have any property. But for some reason, and we see that could be that's that's some typically some kind of diminished cognitive capacity, whether it's age-related cognitive decline or dementia or an intellectual or developmental disability or traumatic brain injury, um, there's a whole array of reasons why someone might find themselves before a court and the question of their ability to make their own decisions is before the court and the court determines a guardian. Is needed.
0: So tell me a little bit, you know, you you work with the ABA and the Commission on Law and Aging. Um, so, you know, the guardianship um, world and the laws, um, How how is that all relevant to what you are doing with the Commission on Law and Aging?
1: So at the Commission on Law and Aging, I work with really the nation's experts on some of the nation's, some of the nation's experts on elder abuse, um, health care decision-making, capacity determination, and of course, adult guardianship. Um, and our mission is to strengthen the legal rights, autonomy, quality of life, and quality of care of aging persons. So when we look at um, who is being appointed a guardian, you know, earlier I mentioned age-related cognitive decline. This, of course, is a major issue for an aging population, and this deprivation of rights, it is so significant to a person's quality of life because what we've seen from research and I think also frankly intuitively we can all understand is taking away a person's ability to make their own decisions, to have control over their own life, um, can have a very severe effect on their quality of life, both physically and emotionally. And so it's an it's a topic that's crucial for us to work on here at the commission. Um, And I wanted to at this point just Direct attorneys and other professionals or family members or anyone who might be tuning in, we have an enormous array of resources on our website on guardianship. In particular, we have a practical tool for attorneys, but it's also been adapted for other professionals. Um, When someone, a client, comes to you and says, I want a petition for guardianship for a family member, the practical tool serves as a checklist, a really comprehensive checklist for going through all the other available options to make sure that there isn't another uh, less restrictive option before going towards to guardianship. I also am personally responsible for compiling and drafting um, an annual legislative summary of guardianship laws across the country. So any new laws that are being passed in states this year, in January, we will be publishing on our website um, a summary and an analysis of all of these new laws if you want to see what's going on Throughout the country. And then finally, something I'll talk about later is WINGS, Working Interdisciplinary Networks of Guardianship Stakeholders, which is an exciting um, project that we've been working on towards guardianship reform. But I also just wanted to point out now when I'm giving my introductions, just a bit of a disclaimer. So you invited me to talk about guardianship reform. And that means today I'm going to be talking about a lot of the, um, the negative attention towards guardianship. I want to say up front that most guardians whether they're family guardians or other community members or they're they're serving as a guardian not professionally not getting paid just um, as to to serve people that they care about or professional guardians who who follow professional standards and have very a very high set of standards or public guardianship systems meaning state funded guardians who are paid by the state I just want to say that this is an incredibly noble endeavor or profession, and most guardians have an incredibly hard job, and they do their best to support the person who they're serving to make their own decisions if possible, and if not, to make decisions according to the person's known preferences and wishes. But we are really concerned about the guardianship abuse. And I'm going to speak more about what that is in a moment. And that's what I'll be talking about today. So I just, I always like to make that disclaimer because I, if, if people are tuning in who are guardians, I don't want them to think that, you know, um, I'm I'm painting the picture with too wide of a brush.
0: Right. No, I think right. that's a great, a great point um, to make. And, and we appreciate that. Um, so let's, let's talk about the guardian to perform and let's talk about kind of the nitty-gritty and the issues that you see. I mean, you mentioned that every year you kind of um, look at all of the new laws mm-hmm. that states are are you know passing and what states are doing. So I'm sure then that gives you kind of a good idea too of the issues that are affecting you know individuals' lives that that have a guardian appointed for them or that need a guardian. So what what type of reform are you seeing, and what kind of issues are you seeing? Well, if it's okay with you, I'd like to set. Yeah, I'd like to set the stage first and answer your second
1: question about issues before okay. I get to reform. Sure. Um, so, again, I'll give you just a little bit of history. The first, you know, my, um, contemporary attention that uh, that the American public really gave to issues with the guardianship system started with um, an article from the Associated Press in 1987. And the title of that article is Guardians of the Elderly and Ailing System. And if I was doing a, um, a PowerPoint presentation or a webinar, this is where I would show you a picture of the front page of this article because it says it all. It's There's a picture of um, a woman who appears to be elderly. She has gray hair and she's sitting, um, she's hunched over, sitting in what's obviously the waiting room of a courthouse. And you can see the judge in the background and you can see the The courtroom in the background, but she's not in the courtroom. She's sitting outside. And this um, investigation found that um, it was a year-long investigation into 50 states and the District of Columbia. And it found an overburdened system that regularly puts elderly lives in the hands of others with little or no evidence of necessity and fails to guard against abuse, theft, or neglect. And uh, you know, in addition to wanting just giving you a little bit of history, I think that really frames to me that's the big picture uh, guardian if you have to explain what guardianship abuse is in a nutshell you've got the two sides. the first is when there are unnecessarily unnecessary or overly restrictive guardianships being imposed, right so someone's rights are being taken away when there there are other options or there should be other options that would suffice to allow the person to make their own decisions with some support. And then, of course, there's the other part to this, which is the financial exploitation, um, as well as risks of undue influence and emotional and uh, sometimes, unfortunately, physical abuse, where the person who's been appointed guardian uses this position as an opportunity to take advantage of the person they're serving. Now, I don't have, I have no data for you on how often this takes place, because And I think this really points to one of the major issues with our current guardianship system is we don't know. Most states couldn't tell you how many guardianships are being appointed, much less how many of those guardianships are for people who are 65 and older versus a younger person with intellectual disability. Uh, What we have is a lot of anecdotal data on these kinds of abuses. The um, Government Accountability Office has put out some studies And you'll find the same thing in those reports, that we don't have comprehensive data. We only have these anecdotal reports of of the issues with the system. So, and I also, uh, many of you may be familiar, there's been some really amazing journalism that's exposed really egregious cases of guardianship abuse. Again, I want to say that, of course, these are the issues, these are the cases that have caught the media's attention. I don't think that this is what's happening all the time. I think there's there are many levels of misuse of the position of guardianship. But many many listeners may may already be familiar. There was a New Yorker article called "How the Elderly Lose Their Lost Their Rights or Lose Their Rights" um, about Nevada. And of course, there was a terrible case there where there was a professional guardian who stole millions of dollars, put people in nursing homes when they didn't need to go in nursing home. She has. She, I think she may already be incarcerated. Um, Her name was April Park, is April Parks, and you can read more about that online. Uh, Pennsylvania, the Reading Eagle did a great series on guardianship abuses in Burke County. There was uh, recently a case in New Mexico, the Ayudondo case that had a lot of media attention where there was um, a professional guardianship organization that uh, was prosecuted, federally prosecuted because they, managed to steal a lot of federal benefits, social security and veterans benefits from the people they were serving. Um, And, you know, there are many more examples I don't need to get into right now. Right. But I do want to stress that when we talk about reform, and I'm going to talk in a few minutes about what kind of changes we could, you know, effectuate for true reform. Really what we're talking about are those guardianships where the person's rights are being taken away unnecessarily or and or there is some kind of
0: financial, usually financial exploitation or other kind of abuse happening. So when you talk about all of these these issues, I mean, one of the things that that strikes me um, is the lack of of data that you were saying how the mm-hmm. aren't keeping track of um, you know how many how many guardianships proceedings are having um, and and how did do, how does that change? I mean, what have you seen with the reform when it comes to just that data collection?
1: That, um, I mean, that is, I would like to see if, if we ever could get federal funding for guardianship reform, to me that is the, the most important place to start, is we need to fund states to be able to collect data in a meaningful way. Um, if you look at the child welfare system, that, that is in 1993, I believe the, the federal government started funding state courts to collect data on child welfare cases on their foster care systems. And um, that program has grown significantly. It's called the Court Improvement Project, CIP. And that is what I think one of the major um, needs right now is is to be collecting data. Because if you have the data, you can say, okay, we know that this percentage of people in our state who are over the age of 65 are being appointed a guardian. And we also know that they're either being appointed a plenary guardianship or a full guardianship that takes away all their rights, or perhaps 20 to 30% are just being appointed um, a guardian of the property, guardian of the state, meaning they can maintain control over their personal decisions and healthcare decisions, but there's a risk of exploitation or there's some other reason why it was necessary to take away their their control over their financial decision-making. And what what you find is when states do do pilot projects and they get to collect a little bit of data. And I think this is what one of the striking things about the Reading Eagle series that I mentioned is you find that, um, for example, the majority of guardianships being appointed are full guardianships, even if they're not really necessary. And I think if there's a a cyclical um, nature to this kind of reform, if we had that data then we could say, okay, the problem is here is that courts are perhaps not appointing as many limited guardianships as they could be. What kind of judicial education is needed? What kind of um, public education is needed to address that? Is there a legislative fix that we need here?
0: Are there other areas of reform that you have noticed or, tr- or trends that different states um, you know, are, are effectuating with, with different changes in their laws?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. So, you know, legislative reform is a huge topic. I mentioned um, earlier that, of course, we analyze uh, updates every year in state legislation. And we also, while I'm doing that, I'm really looking at trends. So in the last 25 years, you know, since that that AP article came out, maybe a little later states, we've seen tremendous um, work on the parts of states to update and amend their guardianship laws. And you're seeing laws that are affirming the rights of people who have guardians, whether it's an actual bill of right for someone, bill of rights for someone with a guardian or enumerating those rights. Um, We're seeing a lot of language about the guardian's duty to include people in decision making. Um, And we're also starting to see something called a recognition of supported decision making, which is a set of which is a strategy um, which And a set of principles that states that the person, whenever possible, should be making their own decisions with support rather than having that decision making taken away from them. Um, And then in 2017, the Uniform Law Commission passed, updated its own Uniform Guardianship Law. So the new law is called the Uniform Guardianship, Conservatorship, and Other Protective Arrangements Act. It was just, like I said, just enacted in 2017. So far, it's been adopted by two states. Maine and Washington. And this is a really progressive law that clearly outlines the duties of a guardian, that gives the court, puts more onus on the courts for monitoring um, and oversight of guardianships, and recognizes supported decision making as an alternative to guardianship, Uh, meaning it encourages and it, it requires the court to consider whether any other options are available other than guardianship. Including a supported decision-making arrangement. So what I'm already seeing is even if states are not adopting this uniform law wholesale, when they are making major changes to their state, state laws, you can see that they're picking and choosing from the uniform law. They're taking the parts of this of the law, of the model law that works for their state. And um, incorporating that language into their state statutes. And I expect we'll see more of that as states continue to amend their laws. But I do wanna make a point about legislative reform, which is that most, what we're seeing now is most states have strong um, person-centered guardianship laws, really focusing on a person's rights, on procedural safeguards, on due process. But the trick, the hard part is how do you get that those laws to work in practice? Mm-hmm. How do they translate into good guardianship practice?
0: As, as we wrap up kind of this session, and I know we're going to be talking um, in, in part two some more about the legislative reform and things that need to be done. Um, you know, I think it's important. Again, you mentioned the resources that the commission has for family members. It also has a lot of um, resources for elder law attorneys. And if people want to find out more information about okay. this work or find out more about um, the commission, where can you just give them that information again on where they can find that? Sure, you can go to our website. And frankly, it's easier just to look it up
1: on your search engine than for me to give you the web address where the commission, the American Bar Association Commission on Law and Aging and all of our resources online are online and part of my job is to provide technical assistance to attorneys and other professionals on these issues. So by all means, you're welcome to post my email on um, Elder Law Answers' website. It's Dari, D-A-R-I dot Pogash P-O-G-A-C-H, at americanbar.org. Please feel free to send me an email if you have a question. Um, that is something that I enjoy doing. And it's frankly, that is part of my job. So please don't be shy.
0: Great. Um, Well, thank you all so much for listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to share it with a friend or colleague. Please also subscribe on iTunes and find all of our past episodes at podcast.elderlawanswers.com. See you next time.